and invite you to turn this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. You may remember back at the beginning of the year, we did a What Is series. What is the gospel? What is justification? What is sanctification? One sermon I had planned on preaching was, What is the Lord's Supper? But I postponed that sermon four times for reasons I don't actually remember. Uh, but today, in God's providence, this is I slotted this in two months ago, I found a place to preach it. And so that's why we're talking about it this morning, the fifth time's a charm. Now, the reason why it's so important to me that we talk about this is that every Sunday, I find the Lord's Supper to be a source of joy. But it wasn't always that way. For a long time, I thought the Lord's Supper was just another church tradition that Christians fought about, which didn't seem to do much for me. Uh, you eat, you drink, you go home, life continues on as normal. Uh, but then in college, I went to one of my favorite history professors and asked her to oversee an independent study on being reformed in the 15th and 16th centuries, which is uh, when the Reformed Church was born. And she very graciously uh, said yes. And one of her assignments was an essay on the Lord's Supper by Huldrych Zwingli. Zwingli was a reformer who lived at the exact same time as Martin Luther and who independently and simultaneously came to the same ideas about justification by faith alone as Martin Luther did. And while not as impactful as John Calvin in our tradition, it's Zwingli who really is the theological father of our Reformed churches. And honestly, when I saw that it was an essay on the Lord's Supper, my first thought was, boring! I finished the essay with tears in my eyes. Using a number of biblical passages, including ours this morning, Zwingli connected the Lord's Supper to daily life with all of its ups and downs and to the Christian life with all of its joys and sacrifices and to the church family with all of its frustrations and blessings. And in that essay, I finally started to learn that the Lord's Supper is not just a thing that we do. It's something that Jesus does to us through faith. For the first time, I saw the Lord's Supper for what it is, Jesus giving me and giving us himself while he's in heaven and making us one body, one family, so that in every area and aspect of our lives, we can know with confidence that he's with us. Uh, I did not have the pastoral gifts of Zwingli, uh, or his rhetorical gifts, but I really want to pass on the joy that I can. I want to help you see that the Lord's Supper is where Jesus gives us himself. It's where he makes us one and where he assures us that he walks with us so that we can live faithfully with him. What I want this morning is for you all to leave happy and helped by the Lord's Supper. And so what we're going to do is read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22, pray, and then I'm going to pull out some elements of the passage so that we can see the goodness and the help of Jesus that's available in the supper that we're going to celebrate after the sermon. 
And here's the elements we're going to pull out. They're on the screen there. The Lord's Supper is communion with Christ. The Lord's Supper produces unity in the body. And then finally, the Lord's Supper helps us flee idolatry. So let's read our passage this morning so that we can explore these blessings of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22. It's going to sound familiar. I feel like we just finished the series on Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22. Let's hear God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Thus far, the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word tells us how you make Christ present to us while we sojourn by, with your spirit to our heavenly home with you. Father, we pray, therefore, that your spirit, who is with your people, would now bless us with the gift of being able to understand your word and to hear your word and to believe your word so that it would be written deeply on our hearts and that we would find joy in this wonderful sacrament that you have set before us. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of all of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Since we just finished a whole series on 2 Corinthians, I'll set the context by saying 
that all the conflicts that had come to a head in 2 Corinthians are here in seed form in 1 Corinthians. And in our section, that would particularly include the conflicts related to hospitality, generosity, and forgiveness, which were presenting themselves at this point by the way that the Corinthians practiced the Lord's Supper. Without getting too far into the details, which are mostly in chapter 11, the Corinthians used access to the Lord's Supper, to the table, as a way to divide the rich from the poor, the socially powerful from the socially weak, and also as a way to discourage conversion by the wrong kinds of people, in quotes. And I say all of that so that I can tell you two things about the context. The first is, I know that this passage doesn't have the joyful feel that you maybe expected it to have after the introduction. But that's because, like apparently everything in Corinth, Paul is addressing a harmful conflict that is hurting people. And there's some warnings that he has to give. And that's why this passage feels more worried and frustrated than it does joyful. But in the background of the passage, like we saw in 2 Corinthians, is Paul's desire that the church would receive the blessings that Jesus is trying to give them. If you wanted to summarize this passage, you could hear Paul basically saying, if you'd stop using the communion baguette to hit people, you might actually find the Lord's Supper to be a source of joy and blessing. And at the heart of those blessings, Paul wants them to understand, is Jesus. And that's what Paul says very explicitly in verse 16. I'm going to read that again. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a, not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The key word there is participation. Different translations use slightly different words. I actually like the word communion better than participation because that's the word that we most often use to translate the Greek word there, koinonia. Some of you might be familiar with that word. It means communion or fellowship. But my favorite translation of that word is the experience of friendship. When you're happy and your friends laugh with you, when you're mad and your friends listen to you vent, when you're weak and your friends carry you, and when your friends call you, just because they like you and want to talk with you. That is koinonia. That is the experience of friendship. But whatever word or phrase you want to use there, what Paul is saying is that when we drink the cup and eat the bread, we are participating. We are having communion, enjoying the fellowship. We are experiencing the friendship of the body and blood of Jesus. Now I know that that is an odd way to put it. Uh, and there's so much that we can say about this. There's so much. But for this morning, Jesus uses the bread and the wine as a metaphor for his life and death. In our meditation verse this morning, we heard Jesus tell us that he is the bread that has come down from heaven, which if we eat of it, we will live forever. And then later on in John's gospel, as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, he tells us, greater love has no one than this 
than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then in one of his most powerful statements, at least to me, as Jesus is getting ready to depart, he tells his disciples, servants don't know the business of their master, which is why he says, so I no longer call you servants, but friends. In the Bible, the summit of our friendship with Jesus and the point at which our relationship with him is filled as full as possible by his love is when Jesus dies for us. Which is why Paul says the bread and the cup are a communion with the body and blood of Jesus. They are the way that Jesus helps us experience the profound depths of our friendship with him. They tell us, Jesus is my friend who died for me because he loves me and chooses me as his friend. But not just that. It's not only a symbol of Jesus' friendship. Zwingli thought it was, it was just a symbol, and I think Zwingli was wrong there. It is a symbol. It is a picture, but it's more than that. In verses 18, 18 through 20, Paul talks about the Old Testament sacrifices and pagan sacrifices which are offered to demons, which I know got all of the kids' ears perked up. Uh, but unfortunately, kids, I'm going to save the discussion about sacrificing the demons for a, a different day. Because right now, all I want us to see is the truth. That when Israel offered sacrifices on the altar, and when she ate of them together, they had communion with those sacrifices. That's verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who, are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants communicants, fellowshippers, it's the same word, in the altar. Paul's point is that when Israel gathered around and ate the sacrifices, they received the blessings that God the Father had promised to them because God the Holy Spirit used those sacrifices as a way to give his people forgiveness and welcome and strength and hope. That is, in the Old Testament, God used those sacrifices to give his people the experience of friendship with Jesus. In theology, we talk about the means of grace. And, and what that means is the way that God actually gives you Jesus. Because after all, Jesus is in heaven. So there has to be a way for Jesus to give you the recreating power of his resurrection life while he's in heaven and we're on earth. And what Paul is saying is that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It's a way that God lets you experience the friendship of Jesus on earth and be changed by it on earth while he reigns over you in heaven and watches out from you from his throne. And by the way, in case you're curious, the other means of grace are the Bible, baptism, prayer, and the place where all those things happen every week, worship. That's what the Lord's Supper is, my friends. It's the way Jesus gives you an experience here at Grace every week 
of his life-sacrificing friendship. And because that's true, it's also the way that Jesus gives us unity. Or we could put it this way, it's the way that Jesus takes our individual friendship with him, and then through that mutual relationship we have with him, makes us all friends with each other in him. And that's verse 17. This is important. This is why you should read the Bible slowly. You can skip over these kinds of amazing statements. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And again, there's so much I want to say here. There's just so much I want to say here, but I don't have time. So I'm just going to say this. And I don't think I actually said this during our series on 2 Corinthians. Corinth, the city where this church that Paul was writing to is located, was a big city in the ancient world. Uh, Back in Paul's day, a Roman politician estimated it had about 200,000 free people living there and 500,000 slaves. 700,000 people lived in Corinth. And with that number in mind, I want you to think about the most diverse area you know of. I want you to think about economic diversity, racial diversity, language diversity, cultural diversity. You have something in mind? Even if you're thinking about New York City, the most diverse place in America, it's probably not diverse enough. Seriously, there were more individual tribes and languages in the ancient world than there are today by maybe a factor of 20 to 30. Just for fun, go home and read Acts chapter 2 and see all the languages the apostles preached in at Pentecost. They talk about how they heard Latin and Greek and people from the regions of Phrygia heard their own languages and from uh, all over the, the known world. You'll see that there were 120 disciples that were preaching, and I'm willing to bet you that each one preached a different language in Jerusalem. And if the linguistic histories that I read are any indication, that's not nearly half or even a quarter of the number of languages that we know were spoken most likely in the ancient world back then. In Corinth, there are people from all over the world. There are people who traveled there from China on the Silk Road and from England in the northern part of the Roman Empire, from South Africa and from Russia, as well as from the Middle East. And if you can imagine this, the community that Paul writes to in Rome was even more diverse. That diversity is represented in a large degree in the Corinthian church. That's the kind of church, that kind of diversity, is the place that Paul says Jesus is making one using his supper. Free and slave Roman conqueror and Roman conquered, Jew and Gentile, women and men and children, Africans, Chinese, Russians, Germans, Egyptians, black and white, Mediterranean, Asian. These are all the people that Jesus is bringing into his church and making friends with and then making friends with each other through his supper. People who, like us, would have absolutely nothing to do with each other are now friends 
because they were befriended by Jesus. And by the way, uh, that friendship while in danger here in Corinth was made so real by Jesus that we have examples in ancient history where a Roman legion chose to be executed for treason when they refused to attack another tribe outside of the Roman Empire because that tribe was Christians and they worshiped together on Sunday. And we are not going to go to war against Jesus' friends because they're our friends. We have communion with each other. I, uh, there's a theologian who likes to say, can you imagine what the world would be like if the church actually took its friendship and unity with each other globally seriously and we just refused to kill other Christians? That actually happened in ancient history. Now, I know the question is, how does the Lord's Supper do that? And one thing we have to admit is, there's some mystery to how this happens. Because the main way this happens is through the Holy Spirit's work, which is mysterious. <laughs> you can't see him, but he still works. As Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is like the blowing wind. You can't tell where he's come from. You don't know where he's going, but you can experience the effect of his power. And it's the Spirit who gives us the experience of Jesus' friendship through the supper. And like any work of God, there's always going to be an element of mystery. There's always going to be something hidden to us about that work. But that said, I don't think it's all hidden. When we celebrate the supper, we come forward and we take the bread and we take the wine or the grape juice together. And as we do that, I think Jesus designed the supper to work in such a way where as we come forward, we look at each other in the face and we recognize that together we are friends of Jesus. When we celebrate the supper together, and this is why I should say Jesus wants the church to celebrate the supper together, not privately and individually, not atomistically and separated, but together, because he wants us to see that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants us to walk forward together side by side and eat together side by side so that we can be blessed together as those who have been openly welcomed as friends of Jesus. And by doing that, doesn't he inspire love in our hearts for each other? Doesn't he help provoke repentance and empower forgiveness? And as we know from ancient history, even stop wars. All of which brings us to our final point this morning. The Lord's Supper helps us flee idolatry. Because the Supper is a way that Jesus gives us his friendship, it's also a way that Jesus reminds us that his friendship with him means being enemies with Satan and with idols. Now, we could go through and look at each one of the Old Testament stories that Paul begins our passage with to warn about what happens when you try to be friends with Jesus and simultaneously friends with sin and Satan. But because time is short, I'm going to sort of summarize and say that in verse 7, when Paul talks about idolaters, 
He's talking about the golden calf at Mount Sinai, a story we're actually going to look at next week. And in verse 8, when he talks about putting Jesus to the test and the serpents, or the snakes, he's talking about when Israel rejected God and wanted to replace him with something else. And in verse 9, when he talks about grumbling, he's talking about when some of the people tried to stir up division between Moses, against Moses and Aaron and God. So these are stories you see about trying to control God. That's the golden calf. Replace God. That's the serpents. And divide God from his people. That's grumbling. Which we never do, right? We never try to control God with bargaining or money. We never try to replace God with something else when he doesn't work on our timetable. And we certainly never try to divide God from his people. I mean, because after all, only people who do everything that I do are God's friends. And everyone else who isn't probably doesn't know him. Oh, I'm sorry. I've been watching too much cable news. Uh, with that in mind, I want us to hear what Paul says in verses 12 through 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The temptation to control God, to replace God, and to divide God from his people, and all the other temptations, the passage tells us, can be escaped. How? What's the context? Well, verse 14 tells us, flee from idolatry. How do you do that? Verses 15 through 22, the Lord's Supper. Now, Paul isn't saying that this meal is some kind of magic cure against temptation, but what he is saying is that because the supper is the way that Jesus gives us an experience of his friendship, and because it's the way that he makes us one when we come to the table as his people, we are empowered by his presence through faith to work against disunity and grumbling and love one another and to reject idolatry and be faithful to Jesus who loves us and cares for us and to fight against our fearful temptations to control Jesus and instead trust him because while we were yet sinners, before we knew we had a need, he came down and in his great wisdom died for me and for you because he's our friend. That's why the Lord's Supper is so amazing, my friends. It's, it's why, it's, it's the way that Jesus gives us himself. It's the way he gives us to each other and helps us to flee from idolatry by renewing his grace, gracious presence to us through it by faith. And while there's so much more that we could talk about, I know we probably have questions about like, why wine and grape juice is okay, how frequently should you do it, um, all of these sorts of things. For today, I just want you to be happy that you can take the Lord's Supper basically every Sunday when you're here at Grace and enjoy the fruit of Jesus' friendship every Sunday. I'm going to end with a story about our brothers and sisters in Malawi. When I was in Malawi, 
I learned that, so Malawi is heavily Presbyterian. It's a country of a few million people. And uh, I think I'm, I'm going to get the numbers wrong. I'm pretty sure it's three million people, two and a half of which are Presbyterian Christians. The Presbyterian Church of Malawi has one pastor for every 100,000 people. Which means they only get to celebrate the Lord's Supper once a year. They only get to hear a sermon a couple times a year as these pastors move around and try to get all these congregations filled. So you can pray for our brothers and sisters in Malawi that the Lord would raise up the pastors they need to do these sorts of things. But hearing that, I can tell you that when they had communion services, it was such a joyful time because they know what Jesus is doing. And hearing that, I hope you're kind of joyfully embarrassed by the riches we have here at Grace. I mean, every Sunday, as long as there's an ordained guy in this pulpit, we get to do something amazing. We get to meet Jesus by faith. We get to be bound together by his spirit. We get to flee temptation together and grow into his image. What an amazing gift Jesus has lavished on us. So let's thank him for it, and then let's partake of it. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for giving us Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Thank you that you use it to anchor and grow our friendship with him and our unity with each other. Please help us this morning to eat with faith in him, trusting that all we've heard is true, so that we can experience his nearness and his love. And please also help us to use this means of grace as a way to fight against the sin that clings so closely, so that we would not only know how close Jesus is, but together grow to look more like him. We ask this all for the sake of his name, which has been given to us in our baptism. Amen.